And so for Athanasius, you know, he really gets to, to come in. And here he is writing, you know, like in the early 300s and really giving this kind of telling a Greek culture, you know, very much a Greek. It's in the Roman Empire, you know, what we now call the Byzantine, the Eastern Roman Empire, but very much the Roman Empire. And it's still Greek in culture, you know, still celebrating the gods. It's still written before you have Constantine and certainly before you have toleration of uh, the Christian religion. And that varies, you know, depending upon where you're at in the empire, if you have more toleration or less toleration. But Athanasius is still giving this argument, not only for fellow believers, but also for a pagan audience as well. Um, there is this divine problem. And he's addressed it as a divine dilemma. And he's talking at this point, you know, kind of halfway through this argument of how there's a divine dilemma about what to do about life and death. I created these two humans. They've sinned and they've erred. And so I've commanded, I gave them a commandment before they did it. That like, if you do this, like you will die the death, you know, like you will have death cease to exist and no longer be, you know, part of this work that I'm doing here in creation, here in paradise in the garden. And so in chapter six, where we pick up, he really lays out halfway through this first paragraph in chapter six that he points out that the problem, look, God would not be true if after saying that we would die, that the human being did not die. But on the other hand, it's improper that what had once been made rational and partakers of his word should perish. In other words, it's improper that these human beings who have his image, his likeness, who have partaken of the word, God the Son, will now die. And just once again, they'll return to non-being because of their corruption. So then he addresses this. Well, it's not worthy of the goodness of God that those created by him should be corrupted through the deceit that's brought by the devil upon human beings. And it's supremely improper that the workmanship of God and human beings should just disappear, either through their own negligence or through the deceit of demons. And so he has sets up this dilemma of like, here it is, God has created human beings, endowed us with image and likeness of him. And then through their own negligence, their own sinfulness, through the deceits of the demons, through Satan specifically, there in the garden, it's improper that now they, they die, but God just can't say like, well, never mind, I erased the commandment. God set a commandment. If God is God, the commandment applies. But if he does nothing, I mean, that's not proper either. It seems like you, you just allowed evil and Satan to win, like you're not going to attack the true problem, you know, the, this sinfulness that has injected itself into the world. And so Athanasius continues on uh, now in the second paragraph of chapter 6. So therefore, since the rational creatures were being corrupted and such works were perishing, what should God, being good, do? Should he permit the corruption prevailing against them and death to seize them? Well, what was excuse me, what need was there for coming into being at the beginning? It was proper not to come into being rather than have to come to being to be neglected and destroyed. The weakness, rather the goodness of God, is made known by neglect, if after creating abandoned his own work to be corrupted rather than if he had not created the human being from the beginning for not making him there would not have been no one considering the weakness but once he made them and created them out of nothing it was most absurd that his work should be destroyed and especially before the sight of the maker it's therefore not right to permit human beings to be carried away by corruption because this would be improper and unworthy of the goodness of god so athanasius makes the argument here that god technically could have just said like well they're corrupted and they're gone Oh, well, the end of the human race. 
But it doesn't really fit in with the goodness of God, that he doesn't provide a solution, a source of salvation, a possibility of redemption. And so he says, because God is good, he is going to provide a source of redemption, a source of salvation, despite the problems that we have. And it's really interesting that the way he lays this out in chapter 7, on, uh, on page 65 of this version, if you're looking with me on this, <clears throat> excuse me, he lays out the, you know, what, excuse me, this is like the third sentence of chapter 7, what then had to happen in this case, or, or what should God do? And they ask the question, you know, kind of rhetorical, demand repentance from human beings for their transgression? Well, one might say that this is worthy of God, claiming that just as they were set towards corruption by the transgression, so by repentance they might set again towards incorruptibility. But repentance would have neither provided, excuse me, would neither have preserved the consistency of God, for he again would not have remained true if human beings were not held fast by death, nor does repentance recall human beings from what is natural, but merely halts sin. So I'll pause there. Athanasius says, you know, here, he's really bringing this point out loud of, look, God could have said, you know, like, you need to repent from what you have done. And then they would have no longer have a sin. They would have halted from sin. But people are still, you know, held fast by death. It would only have halted sin and not the natural corruption would not have solved death itself. Hey, you should not do this anymore. You should repent. And people ask this question a lot, actually, when they're wrestling with faith. Like, I don't understand why God has to be so angry. Why couldn't he just said, I forgive you? Boom, we're, we're back in the garden. Everything's fine. But Athanasius makes the point that that's not how things work. When you sever yourself from life, when you sin willingly, you corrupted yourself. So now you're no longer what you once were. You're no longer incorrupted you're now corrupted and so death like a curse like what scripture calls it a curse is there from waiting for us if you repent that's good you know you're walking away from sinning further but the outcome the natural outcome is there and so death has to be dealt with death has to be defeated repentance is only part of the equation and in reality this is where augustine will come in later on and say like we really can't even repent ourselves and he goes back to saint paul who talks about even your faith you know is a gift to you that the repentance that we have is a gift from god turning us away turning us around but for athanasius he continues on halfway through chapter 7 on page 65 that if then there were only offense if there was only the offense against god of sin and not the consequences of corruption repentance would have been fine so he points out look just simply saying you know forgive and forget would have been possible if there wasn't the corruption of who we are if there wasn't we changed in the garden we were no longer who we were once were who we were created to be we were corrupted and death is coming for us but if once the transgression had taken off Human beings were now held fast in natural corruption and were deprived of the grace of being in the image of God, that is. What else needed to happen? That, that's where he's really pointing us towards. The, we need something else to happen. Or, who was needed for such grace? And recalling except the God word. That's his other word for, another name for God the Son. Who in the beginning made the universe from non-being. For his it was once, mo excuse me, for his it was once more both to bring the corruptible to incorruptibility and to save the superlative consistency of the Father. 
being the word of the Father and above all, he alone, consequently, was both able to recreate the universe and was worthy to suffer on behalf of all and to intercede for all before the Father. So in other words, the equation that Athanasius points out for us is it's way bigger than, oops, I broke the vase. I'm sorry about that. That's okay. I forgive you. It was an accident. It's way bigger than that, that we're created in the image and the likeness of God. And what we see is in the Western concept, this comes after Athanasius, it'll say that the image of God is marred. You know, some will go too far and say it's removed. You know, I disagree with that vehemently. But like the, the Catholic teaching, little c Catholic, is that the image of God is marred. You know, it's not what it once was. The Eastern theology, after Athanasius, will really lean in on, we were created, remember Genesis, in the image and likeness of God. And so they really say there's a distinction between the two. And we have lost the likeness of God because we are no longer like God in, in the garden, you know predisposed to following his commands and good. Once we have rebelled, the end result is we're predisposed now to sin and corruptibility. Regardless of which way you define it, west or east, we are united in thought that things are not as they once were. And that's what Athanasius is pointing out there. It's not merely a forgive and forget. If it was, if it was just about repentance, then yeah, I mean, everything would be fine. We could be back in the garden. But the problem is that like God laid it out. He explained that when you depart from me, when you break this command and you take forth, you know, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, when you rebel, something's going to happen to you. And the Eastern Church has theologians that talk about it's not so much a punishment so much as it's a warning. You know, just like, you know, if you, if you trespass, you know, if you, if you cross over, you know, that beyond that field, you know, you'll get electrocuted because there's an electric fence. I'm not punishing you. I'm warning you. Like, if you do, that will happen. The Western Church has taken it more of a punishment kind of philosophy of God saying, if you disobey, like, you will die, you know. Regardless of which way you lean on, the effects, the problem is the same. That when you disobey God, something fundamentally changed in the human race. And that's where Augustine, after Athanasius, will point out, therefore, as Paul says, since we all come, you know, from our forebearers, Adam and Eve, we are all infected, essentially, with this corruption of death. We are all bent towards sin because we've been corrupted. We were once not corrupted, had potential, as the church fathers would say, to be immortal, had an opportunity to take from the tree of life. It was not for us to take. But once we corrupted ourselves, God exiled us from the garden. Because God talks to himself aloud in Genesis and says, Now, if they reach out and take from the tree of life, and then he cuts himself off, almost too grieved or too worried of, if Adam and Eve take from that, then they are immortally condemned in their corruption. We'd be like the demons who have made an eternal choice. The demons, not in flesh, not material, but spiritual beings, when they made their decision to rebel against God, you know, going from angels to now what we call demons, they're still spiritual beings, but they've clearly have made their choice. And there's nothing in Scripture of a repentance for demons. It's quite clear that Christ talks about how there is hellfire prepared for Satan and his demons. They're in this eternal rebellion against God, and they run rampant upon this earth as long as they can until God, you know, clamps down. Well, I shouldn't say clamp down. He has clamped down through Jesus Christ coming in, empowering his church to cast out the demons. But when he finalizes his judgment on them, their time will be at an end. 
for us, God has mercy and grace because he made us in his image and likeness. And we're also created beings. We have this, well, they're created beings too. That We are uh, fleshly beings is what I'm trying to say, material beings, so that we live within the space-time continuum. We have a time, and then we die. And as Paul says, you know, once there is death, you know, then there is judgment upon us. So Athanasius here is building out the equation of mere repentance would not have been enough. And he doesn't dive into, like, could we even have repented? Augustine will answer that question, because Scripture answers, like, no, we couldn't even repent it. Once we're corrupted, we're corrupted. We need to be made whole before we can even repent. But he points out that the problem is that corruption. The corruption is the huge problem. That's why Paul really stacks the deck on death, 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 death. And it's because of death we engage in sin. The wages of sin is death, you know. You reap what you sow. We sin, and therefore death is what we have earned. But then the solution he lays out right here is in this last sentence of chapter uh, 7 on page 65, that the one who can bring, this is the, the second to last sentence, it, for his it was, talking about the God word, the Son of God, Jesus, was once more both to bring, he's able to do two things, bring the corruptible to incorruptibility, us, death to life, and to save the superlative consistency of the Father. In other words, to make it where the Father is not inconsistent. If I just somehow ignore the command, then there's no consequences for action. If I ignore the command, then I really defeat myself at being God, because when I issue a command, it's eternal, or else you're not really God. And also to show the consistency of, but God is good. And so why would he allow Satan and the demons to win? Because his own creation, his own image and likeness is now caught and trapped in sin and in death. But God the Son can undo it. And God the Son is exactly the right one to do it. Sometimes we think, or at least I've thought in my life, like God the Father sends God the Son to go do his dirty work. That's not it at all. God the Father is the one who said, go and create. And God the Word, God the Son, is the one who created and so Athanasius points out, who better to recreate the world, the cosmos in the Greek, the entire universe, than the one who spoke it into existence on behalf of the Father at the very beginning? So that's why in the last sentence, being the word of the Father, and above all, he alone consequently was both able to recreate the universe, and he's worthy to suffer on behalf of all, and to intercede before the Father, because he's one with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so... He continues this line of thought in chapter 8. For this purpose, then, the incorporeal and incorruptible and immaterial word of God comes into our realm, enters into our world, enters into the cosmos. Although he was not formerly distant. So he reminds us, it's not as though God is always distant, but God enters in the world. God the Son does. No part of creation is left void of him, void of God. While abiding with his own Father, he's filled all things in every place. But now he comes, on top of page 67, now he comes condescending towards us in his love for human beings and his manifestation. That manifestation is a key Greek word there that's being translated into the English. Because in the scriptures as well, we'll hear in a moment how Christ manifests himself. Christ shows us himself when he comes into the world. For seeing the rational race perishing, and death reigning over them through corruption, and seeing also the threat of the transgression giving firm hold to the corruption which is upon us, and that it was absurd for the law to be dissolved before being fulfilled, 
and seeing the impropriety in what had happened, that the very things of which he himself was the creator was disappearing, and seeing the excessive wickedness of human beings, that they gradually increased it to an intolerable pitch against themselves, and seeing the liability of all human beings to death, having mercy upon our race, and having pity upon our weakness, and condescending to our corruption, and not enduring the dominion of death, lest what had been created should perish, and the work of the Father himself for human beings should have been in vain. He takes for himself a body, and that not foreign to our own. A long sentence, a complex sentence, you know, very Paulinian in terms of its writing. But he just lays out that, like, Jesus does not sit on the sideline. He sees all of creation becoming unwound because of corruption, sin, and death through humanity. And he doesn't sit on the sideline. Instead, he who is a creator, who is the word that spoke into everything into existence, has mercy. He doesn't do it begrudgingly, but out of mercy, out of love, out of pity for our own weakness, condescending to become physical in our own bodies, condescending to our own corruption, as he says, but not enduring death's dominion, conquering death, being the only sinless one, destroying death. He comes to us, and he does so, is the last part of that long sentence says, so that lest what had been created should perish. And the work of the Father himself for human beings should have been in vain. He takes himself a body that is not foreign to our own. And this is crucial because this is something that later on, like after he writes this, very quickly the Arian controversy comes about. And we talked all about it last week, about how they said Jesus is some sort of super creature, not fully God, but he becomes man. And for Arius, he'll go back to his roots of writing this book and say, if it's not God who became man, then super creature can't do anything for us. Super creature is not one of us. An angel cannot do this for us. Because we need a pure, incorruptible God to come and reignite, refuse, recreate his own image and likeness in us. We're not made in the image and likeness of angels. We're not made in the image and likeness of a super creature, you know, false Jesus that Arianism is creating. We're made in the image and likeness of God. And so God himself comes in and restores the image and likeness to us and unwounds death. So when Athanasius goes through this, he points out that when he becomes man, he's doing the fall. This is toward the bottom of page 67, still in the same chapter here. He talks about how, thus, taking from ours, which is like, in other words, taking a body like our own, since all were liable to the corruption of death, delivering it over to death, delivering his body that he took upon himself to death on behalf of all, he offered it to the Father. And doing this in love for human beings, so that on one hand, with all dying in him, the law concerning corruption in human beings might be undone its power being fully expended in the lordly body and no longer having any ground against similar human beings. On the other hand, that as human beings had turned towards corruption, he might turn them again to incorruptibility and give them life from death by making the body his own and by the grace of the resurrection, banishing death from them as straw from the fire. It's very poetic and very deep language there, but what Athanasius is getting at is two things. And you'll hear Eastern Orthodox say, you know, Christ didn't offer anything to the Father. Well, they need to go back and read Athanasius, you know, one. Uh, I won't go too far on that rabbit trail, but if you ever hear that, 
Athanasius says something else. He offers his own self, his own body, on behalf of all. He goes back to the Father and has said, basically, I have accomplished the command that was written out. I am the incorruptible one. And now, just like he says here, talking about consenting corruption in human beings, it may be undone. How so? Because since Christ has died for us, if we identify in him, if we become part of him, we're joined to his body. We talk about church as the body of Christ. And I was trying to hammer this last week. Like, it's quite literal. Mystically, really, actually, somehow, although we don't see it with our eyes, we are part of Christ's body. The same body was nailed to a cross for us. And that's our only salvation, is to be in Christ, to be in the body of Christ, in his church. I'm talking about physically here. This is physically how we meet together. But the way we first join that church is through faith in our baptism and continuing. And so for us, you know, being called together in the church, we receive Christ himself continually, you know, into our physical body so that we're continually made part of his body because of the incorruption that he achieved for us is given to us through the Spirit of God and by joining us together. Think about all the images in Scripture about being grafted. You were grafted into the body, we were grafted into the church, we were grafted into the vine, you know, into this plant. We were once, as Paul says, a bunch of wild offshoots, the Gentiles, and we're grafted into the true Israel, into Christ's body, so that his life is given to us. Or as Christ says in John, abide in me, and I will abide in you. That I am the vine, you are the branches. And where do you get the life? From the vine. And the vine gives the life through the branches. Christ is being quite literal, you know. Like, he's saying this metaphor, but he's saying, like, this is what I'm doing for you. This is what I'm doing for the human race. And so that's why, like, when we see in chapter 9, it talks about how the Son of the Father of the Word is not able to die. And for this reason, he takes to himself a body capable of death. He becomes one of us. Why? In order that participating in the Word who is above all might be sufficient for death on behalf of all, and through the indwelling word would remain incorruptible, so corruption might henceforth cease from all by the grace of the resurrection. In other words, by offering the death of his body that he took on to himself, he offers a holy offering, free of all spot, free of all blemish, like the lambs that were being called to be sacrificed should be free of spot. And he immediately abolished death, immediately destroyed death, by doing so because what he did was he took on the flesh of Adam and he destroyed death by being the perfect one by being the only incorruptible one and taking up our corruptible bodies and then raising it up from the dead that's why Easter Sunday is so important that's why resurrection is so crucial for Jesus he's destroying death by his own death and showing that everyone who's born in the same flesh of Adam you have nothing to fear that you will be made one with him if you have faith in him and now, as Paul says, death has no hold over you. Truly, it has no hold. Yes, we still die, you know, now to go to be with the Lord, not to go down into Sheol. But at the great time in which it's time for the resurrection of the dead, time for the judgment, all of us will be risen from the dead, you know, to the great resurrection of new life in the new bodies to dwell eternally with our Lord. Creation will be restored. Creation will even go to the next stage because we see in Revelation a hint and a taste of we're going beyond the garden. The tree of life is there. It's in the midst of a city now. It's no longer in the garden. The garden is in the middle of the city. The people of God have 
multiplied and filled the earth. It's no longer two in a garden. It's a whole host and an innumerable number of people. And so he gives this beautiful illustration. It's like as when a great king entered some large city and made his dwelling in one of the houses in it. Such a city is certainly made worthy of a high honor. It no longer does, excuse me, no longer does any sort of enemy or bandit descend upon that city, but rather it's reckoned worthy of all care because the king has taken residence in one of the houses. And so also it happens with the king of all. Coming himself into our realm, dwelling in a body like all of us, every design of the enemy against human beings has been henceforth ceased. The corruption of death which prevailed formerly against them perishes. The race of the human beings would have been utterly dissolved had not the master and savior of all, the Son of God, come for the completion of death. And so we see this in our own lives. We see it quickly in Genesis when very much everything goes to hell in a handbasket. And what do we end up having? Noah's flood. In order to save, you know, the only righteous one, save the righteous line in which the Messiah is going to be born from. And as soon as he tells Noah, be fruitful, go and multiply, we don't leave the chapter before sin enters back in, showing that the problem is the corruption of all of us. We still need a Savior. And you only go a couple of chapters later, not even that, and you hit the Tower of Babel of like the human race is multiplying again. Is it filling the earth and multiplying? It's multiplying, but it's all hanging around saying, let's create this tower and we can ascend and be made gods. We can go to God ourselves. And God scatters the proud and sends us out into the world, saying, I will make you multiply and be fruitful. I will make you fill the earth. And I will scatter your languages in order to get it accomplished. And so he does this because Christ has a mission. And from the very beginning, of course, the promise in the garden that Athanasius doesn't even touch upon, but there's that promise that through you, Eve, you know, will be born the one who is going to reverse this curse. He will crush the head of the snake, the serpent, the dragon. The snake, the serpent, the dragon, Satan will bind his heel, will deliver a fatal wound. And we need that. We need his death so that death will be undone. Because when you first hear that, especially if you think of like the Jewish people hearing that, you know, just with the Torah, it's like there's a promise there that the snake will be defeated, but then our great champion will be killed in the process. And it's like you get half of the, the answer there of like, I wonder why that's going to happen. And it's because it's not just anybody who's going to be dying. It's the only one who's incorruptible dying for us so that death will no longer have any corruption. Death will be made purified is what I'm saying here. Death itself, once so unholy, is now changed to where it's only a change for us who are in Christ. It's not the end. It's a change for us until we wait like fruits, excuse me, seeds in the ground to be springing forth as the resurrection. But instead, once, you know, we were condemned to die, now we're just simply planted as seeds waiting for that great trumpet call to be risen from the dead. And so I'll end with this since we've gone a little bit long, but this is why you see him really leaning in on Hebrews. He really talks about how when it comes to why God the Son becomes one of us, Quote Hebrews 2.10, It's fitting that he, from whom all things were made, and through whom all things were made, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the pioneer, the leader of their salvation, perfect through sufferings. Since therefore, this is Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 15, Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, talk about from parents, we share in our flesh and blood from our parents, he himself, Jesus, took, likewise partook of them, us, so that through death he might destroy him who have the power of death, that is the devil, 
it might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. And there it is, once again, uh, Paul, you know, writing in Hebrews, as he writes elsewhere, is that fear of death, it's death enslaving our imaginations, and therefore, out of fear of death, we do what we want, and we sin. We justify ourselves, and we end up just compounding, like in compounding interest, our own sins that just further condemn us to death. But then, as Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, 21-22, as by a human being, and if you took it literally, as by Adam came death, by a Adam, by a human being, has also come the resurrection of dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And that's what concludes our chapter there, and we'll pick up with chapters 11 through 20. But what he's really emphasizing is that Adam brings death into the world through his sin. And that's what he passes along, because now you have this image and likeness being blurred, marred, you know, no longer as it once was. And so Adam and Eve passing along that corruption to all of us, we need another Adam. And that's where Christ, the new Adam, the second Adam, as we call him, comes into the flesh. This is why it's so crucial and important that he takes on our own flesh. This is where, like, the Roman Catholics really err by saying that, oh, Virgin uh, Mary was miraculously conceived, the Immaculate Conception. People sometimes confuse, thinking Immaculate Conception is about Jesus. It's not. That's a Roman Catholic doctrine that Mary is somehow immaculately conceived because of the way they develop theology on how does original sin pass along. What they don't see is what the Eastern Church and the Reformers have said. Like, no, when Christ took on flesh, it doesn't need to be some sort of amazing humanity, you know, some sort of like the Virgin Mary is a superhuman almost who gave Jesus some sort of purified humanity. No, we need Jesus to take on this dirty, old, rotten humanity that we have and to purify it and to cleanse it. And so when the Holy One of God, when Jesus Christ takes on from the flesh the Virgin Mary, a sinner like us, he takes on Adam's flesh and he purifies it because incorruption has touched corruption and he lives the perfect life so it's never corrupted. That's why it's so crucial that he abides by the law all of his life. It's never corrupted. He never falls because he's Christ. He's God. And now we have the perfect human doing what Adam and Eve were called to do in the garden. And not only that, but then he willingly dies on the cross for us, for our sins. Death has no hold. This is why we say this. Death has no hold on him. What has he done to deserve death? Nothing. Nothing at all. And yet he willingly allows humanity to put him up on that cross. And he willingly allows to die, to go down into the dominion of death, to go down into Sheol, where Satan has his little kingdom, or he thinks he does. And this is why Christ breaks it open. The light of God goes into the darkness, and all those souls who are waiting for him, Abraham, you know, even Adam and Eve, you know, all those patriarchs, Christ shines his light upon them and rescues and redeems them and takes them up to be with them. As he tells the thief on his right, you know, today you will be with me in paradise. You will no longer be in Sheol. I'm robbing Satan of what he thinks is his kingdom because he doesn't have any dominion over you. Like, I died for you. If you're in me and you have faith in that, even your wicked flesh now belongs to me. Your sins are gone. If you identify in me, Satan can't have any call on you. Your sins can't weigh you down to death. Death has no hold of you. 
Although you're not resurrected yet, O saints, you're now to be with Christ in God's presence. And then I'm going to finish what I've started, and we'll have the great resurrection, where the bodies will come to life, and you will have the spiritual bodies like Christ. So that, that's the great undoing, the great unwinding that, that Christ is doing for us. So we've gone, gone long, but any thoughts or any questions there? Well, hopefully y'all are enjoying this with Athanasius. Uh, I'm enjoying it. So he's got a powerful way of writing and really speaking to us uh, today. And uh, he's answering questions that people are still asking. Now, he's writing it differently, but that's why we need to engage Athanasius to see he's answering the question of, like, why would God do it this way? Because, I mean, I think we've all had the thought at some point in our life, why doesn't God just, like, you know, snap, wave the magic wand, and say, like, everything is, is undone and made right. And that's why we've got to go back to Scripture. We see that it's not as simple as forgive and forget. God is loving, you know, like, he certainly has forgiven us in our sins. But the only way he can rescue us from corruption is to take on sin itself, destroy death itself, and now he offers the invitation, come and see, come and join. But humanity is still going to have that free will of, is he going to follow after Christ? Is he going to let the seeds that are being cast hit his heart and grow? Or do we let the cares of the world or Satan or distractions, you know, take away that message from us? And we go back following our own ways, heading towards death. It's why as, uh, the men's fellowship group has seen in, in the Proverbs, there's the way of life and the way of death. A way that seems right to man, but in the end leads to death. And so that's why we're called as heralds, you know, to go out and be messengers heralding the evangel, the evangelical message, the gospel, that. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. Now, I admit that like people in this world don't know that there's a problem, and therefore they're like, that solution doesn't make any sense to me. But that's why we got to meet people where they're at, you know, because everyone has pain points and has suffering, and we have good news. Like, it doesn't have to be this way. You're right. This is wrong. This is not right. And that God is a loving God who is reversing and changing and interjecting himself. The way he does it, with his hands and his feet, is through his church, and that's us. That's where we have to, to be faithful and get to work. So, All right, sermon over. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for the blessings of coming together. Um, I want to lift up, O oh Lord, uh, those who are not with us right now, uh, for your health and for your protection to be upon Elaine, for the blessings of safe travels, and for the care that uh, Donna uh, will be receiving in addition to Bob as he's taking care of her over the next several weeks. That you be with our brother in Christ, Archdeacon Woody, as he prepares himself uh, for his operation in a couple of weeks. That you continue to be with Wanda's sister, Mitzi. Uh, take care of her, O oh Lord. Uh, help her through her treatments as she's battling cancer. And grant her your healing, O oh Lord. Uh, we have so many, O oh Lord, um, who are going through so much right now. For those who are forgotten, Lord, forgive me. But we'll pray for them uh, momentarily uh, through the liturgy. And Lord, I also ask, um, Lord, I ask, I give thanks to you and praise to your name, O oh Lord, uh, for the delivery of Eleanor Faith. Thank you for bringing her safely into this world. Continue to be um, with Candy as she's recovering from the delivery. May Lord help her levels to be where they need to be uh, as she's a diabetic, as you know, O oh Lord. And uh, Lord, continue to be uh, with Joshua, uh, who's a happy and proud new father. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.